Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Uh-oh. 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 Dun-dun-dun. Uh-oh. What? This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, Nevada is holding its presidential primary election today. And just like here in California, Nevada has a relatively large number of Latino voters. And they could play a big role in determining the outcome of races in Nevada and here in California for the March 5th primary election. But for candidates trying to win over Latino voters, there are some serious obstacles. For starters, Latinos are the least likely group of eligible voters to actually cast a ballot. And millions of Latinos who are eligible to vote aren't even registered. That's according to the Latino Policy and Politics Institute at UCLA. And what's more, even if they are registered, Latinos are always underrepresented among likely voters. And that's who campaigns target with mail, robocalls, and other kinds of messages. So, why are Latinos relatively disengaged from politics? And what will it take to change that? What issues are most important to Latino voters? And what's this we hear about Latinos shifting toward Republican candidates, including Donald Trump? Well, no one better to talk about all of this than Matt Barreto. He founded and leads the Latino Policy and Politics Institute at UCLA. Matt, welcome to Political Breakdown. Scott, thanks for having me. And Matt, let me just begin. You just heard me characterize uh, the voting patterns among Latino voters. How do you see it? You know, what did I miss? What would you add? Well, it is uh, the fastest growing segment of the electorate, not just here in California, but nationwide. We have been seeing record growth in the voter registration. You are right that our community does have lower than average registration rates, but that is changing in, in some part due to states like California, which have automatic voter registration and convenient election day voting. Um, And so it's a growing electorate. What that means is that there's a record number of first time brand new voters. We're estimating that in 2024, it could be one out of five, 20% of all Latino voters. That's their first presidential election that they've ever voted in. So there needs to be more outreach. There needs to be more engagement. These are not voters that go all the way back to the Clinton years and remember those elections and have been voting in four or five or six presidentials. It's a new electorate. It's a growing electorate. uh, And there's a lot of diversity within the Latino community. Yeah, and we'll get to some of that. But uh, the fact that there are so many first-time voters among Latinos, how much of that is just that Latinos tend to be a little younger and therefore weren't eligible by age to vote and they're registering now for the first time or some other factor? Well, I think there's three things that we identified. The first is age. You are exactly right. It's the youngest electorate of any of the uh, national electorates, average age of 28, uh, about 12 years younger on average than white folks. And so there are so many people who are 18, 19, 20, 21 registering to vote and coming into the electorate for the first time. The second group are people who maybe weren't quite as politically engaged 10 years ago. So they're in their early 30s, 
maybe the previous elections didn't really catch their eye, and now they're finally realizing the importance of voter engagement. And so you have a lot of young 30s, late 20s who are just registering for the first time. Then the third component are naturalized citizens. We continue to have a, uh, you know millions of people uh, naturalizing and becoming U.S. citizens every year. And then they enter the election. And those people tend to be on average much older, 45 to 50, um, when they first enter the electorate. All of that is growing the Latino electorate. And we're seeing, um, you know, we're expecting record turnout here in California uh, for Latinos where they could make up as much as uh, 27 or 28 percent of the electorate this year. Wow. So much to unpack there. Let me begin with that number of uh, of voters who are voting for the first time, especially the younger ones. You know, with a lot of people, they learn politics from their parents, their families. If their parents tend to be Republican or Democrat, oftentimes they are as well. Now, there's a lot of exceptions, of course. But I'm wondering to the extent to which that is true or less true in Latino families. There's actually a lot of really uh, fascinating research going on right now by uh, scholars, faculty members across the country who are studying this sort of um, parallel levels of engagement or socialization that is taking place uh, by children helping their parents. There's a professor at the University of Texas, Roberto Carlos, uh, who's studying other professor there in town at San Francisco State, Marcela Garcia Castañon. Many of these folks have written on that exact angle that you say that many uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds registering to vote for their first time, their parents may be immigrants, not even eligible to vote. And so they are socializing at the same time to the American political system that their parents are. And, and they're going through that process together. And what that means is that you don't have the legacy of partisanship, whether it's Republican partisanship or Democratic partisanship that we often see in white and black families in the United States. Uh, and so the Latino vote is is new and growing, and it's much more open to persuasion and mobilization as a result of that newness to the system. And what about the group that are just now becoming citizens? I mean, I, this is maybe a little speculative, but what difference might it make to one's political outlook becoming a citizen now as opposed to, say, 1994, when Prop 187 was on the ballot. Yeah, no, that's a great point. There is also a lot of uh, academic research on the political context in which one naturalizes. And exactly as you would suspect, if you naturalized to vote following Prop 187 in the 1990s in California, you carried that baggage with you and, and you saw those anti-immigrant measures, not just 187, but 209 and 227. Those people had very high levels of political engagement after naturalizing and becoming voters as compared to ones who might have naturalized a bit later or during times where there was less tension. Today, we've returned to an era where there's a lot of tension in politics. And as a result, and there's a lot of anti-immigrant tension. As a result, those immigrants who are coming into the political spectrum for the first time today in 2024, we're expecting them to be engaged and voting at very high rates because they're not taking their citizenship for granted. And we've seen that time and again when um, when these circumstances arise. And what issues do you think uh, are most top of mind for those folks? I mean, younger people generally might be more concerned, for example, about LGBTQ rights or climate change, uh, maybe gun violence. W what are you seeing among Latino voters who are registering for the first time, especially the younger ones? Well, there's been some polling by here statewide by the Latino Community um, Foundation. And what they have found is that costs are the single number one issue across every uh, age and demographic spectrum within the Latino community. 
Uh, this is a group that is more cost sensitive, um, not as high in income as average uh, Californians and is more responsive to changes in prices. And so Latinos are talking a lot about cost and want to see policy proposals and plans that addressed those costs. They don't always blame the government, what we're finding in follow-up questions. They also blame a lot of corporations and, and companies for potentially price gouging. So there's a lot of blame to go around on this, but that is the number one issue across the board. And then you do get into, when you peel the back a little bit and you get into the second or third issue, we do, we do see those exact generational uh, issues that you talked about. Climate change and gun violence are uh, clear issues in the Latino community and much stronger among younger folks. Uh, and the older populations are now starting to talk about things like Social Security and Medicare. So you do see those traditional divides, but across the board, I think this will continue to be an issue where we hear a lot of discussion about cost and prices. We've seen in other states that abortion is an animating issue, especially for Democrats, suburban women, and so on. What about Latino voters? And does that really depend on the age of the voter and how long they've been voting? We have seen a transformation on that issue. You know, if you go back 30 years, the Latino electorate was described as more conservative on the abortion issue, but not just among the Latino community in the United States has become much, much more uh, pro-choice. Uh, but we've seen that transform in Latin America, where most countries now do have legal access to abortion. And so this is something that is more of a stereotype, I think, of the older uh, days of the Latino community, that they were Catholic and very conservative on that. Even among Catholic Latinos today, we find over two to one support for saying, regardless of my own political beliefs, if somebody else needs access to abortion, the government should make that available. So we, ha we have seen a transformation. Yes, it's more prevalent among younger people, but I think the abortion debate got so stark with the abortion bans, uh, especially in states like Texas, which has a huge Latino population. Many of those people who were getting arrested and held at the beginning of the Texas abortion ban were Mexican-Americans. And they lived in areas where there were no Planned Parenthoods and there were no resources available. So this has become an animating issue. It was an animating issue for Latinos in 2022. And I think the community is changing on that. Even among the conservative segment, they're saying, it may not be right for me. It may not be in line with my own political and religious beliefs, but this should be something that is legally available to people who need it. You know, if you, we mentioned Proposition 187, which uh, was on the ballot in 1994. It helped Pete Wilson get reelected. It passed overwhelmingly. It targeted people here in the country illegally and tried to um, prevent them from accessing things like public education and public health care and other, other services. A lot of that was struck down. But it also, many see that as the beginning of the demise of the Republican Party in California in large measure because of how it mobilized and energized Latinos. A lot of people like Alex Padilla got engaged in politics around Prop 187. And I'm wondering, it's been a while now since, since that was on the ballot. To what extent do you think it's more of a clean slate when it comes to uh, Latinos looking at the Republican and Democratic parties? Well, I think there's still a bit of a, uh, a hangover for the Republican Party in California because of that. Uh, they, have, they have worked to try to escape that. They have fielded some candidates uh, who have moved much more to the center on immigration issues. And I think that's the position that the Republican Party should be in, in a, in a position of, of passing compromise legislation on issues of immigration. But there still are uh, Republicans running on the far right 
uh, whether it's in Orange County, San Diego, and in, in the Fresno Valley, even that depends entirely on immigrant labor. Uh, and so they haven't been able to escape that fully. But remember what we said at the start of this conversation, there are so many first time Latino voters, brand new coming into the electorate who may not remember, they only have heard stories of the marches during 1994. And so for them, you are starting over, you're starting blank. Uh, and there's an opportunity for both political parties and all candidates to go out, court the Latino vote, have something uh, that is in alignment with our culture, our values, uh, and try to win the vote. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about the role Latino voters will play in this election year. You're listening to Political Breakdown. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, here with Matt Barreto. He's the founder of the Latino Politics and Policy Institute at UCLA. You know, years ago, and I'm thinking like, I don't know, going back to like, I remember uh, Michael Dukakis uh, or George H.W. Bush, you know, the idea of Latino voter outreach was saying a few words in Spanish, badly, usually, uh, in front of a, of a crowd. And then you could check the box and say, oh, OK, I showed my credentials as being, you know, uh, supportive of Latinos. How have things changed? I mean, what is the status today? Uh, what has changed in terms of uh, reaching out to Latino voters uh, or, or what hasn't changed? Well, I think it needs to be entirely integrated into a candidate or political party's approach. It shouldn't be seen as a separate box they need to check. And I think we're moving uh, strongly in that direction. I think that the candidates that are the most successful, they have not just a Latino engagement director, but they have multiple uh, Latino staff members across the board, whether it's their communications director or the person making their radio ads uh, or the person in charge of their field in Canvas, that you not only need to have a Latino engagement director to make sure you're paying attention to the community, but you need to have your staff fully reflective. Uh, and in a state like California, where Latinos are the single largest racial or ethnic group, you need to make sure that that's what your campaign staff looks like. And that's what your legislative staff looks like when you're legislating. If you're doing those things, it's going to come across that you understand our community, that you can speak to our community. You know what it means uh, to have parents who are undocumented and you're a first generation college goer. You, you need to be able to to relate to those experiences. And if you do that, I think campaigns are, are moving heavily in that direction. Uh, they're going to be much more successful, but not all of them are. Uh, and that's what I pay attention to when I'm evaluating can campaigns to see is that candidate going to connect? Or are they going to have the ability to understand the Latino community? Well, in that regard, let's let's talk about the U.S. Senate race. You've got three prominent Democrats, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee. It seems in the, in the polling that I've seen anyway that, uh, you know, they have not, none of them have captured the imagination or the votes and support uh, of the Latino community. A, would you agree with that? And B, you know, what are they doing wrong, if anything? 
Well, I think when you go back to just their strategy about outreach is what does their staff look like? What policies have they advocated for? Have they always been interested in earning the votes of Latinos or is this just because they're running for U.S. Senate? So there's a lot that they need to do and it's hard to be able to pick it up just overnight. You need to show that longtime commitment to that. And I think when you evaluate uh, the candidates who are running right now, I think it is safe to say that none of them on the Democratic side, that the big front runners um, have well-established names in the Latino community. Uh, there, there doesn't appear to be by looking at the polling, any clear front runner who is a household name or who really is known for investing and advocating for Latinos. I don't believe that any of these candidates um, are opposed or oppositional. That's just not natural for them. And that comes across. And we would like to see more campaign offices, more staff, uh, storefronts in the Latino community where people can learn about their campaign, door-to-door -door campaigning that's bilingual, bicultural. If they do this and they go into the community and they knock on doors and ask for people's votes with policies, they're going to win. And so it's not uh, it's not that hard. You just have to make the effort. And you have to believe in it. Uh, and so that's what we'll be looking to, towards this this primary to see who emerges. Uh, and then, of course, the runoff. Yeah. So the primary is only going to tell us half the story. And then when we get to the runoff in November. We'll see, you know, which of the Democrats can can make that effort. Oh, you know, one of the signals that voters look for, I would think, is is a name. Um, and I'm wondering what how you think voters evaluate that or the, what impact it makes. And I'm thinking of some mixed messages. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the Republican congressman Mike Garcia, who represents uh, this 27th congressional district. He is a former uh, Navy fighter pilot, pretty conservative, very you know supportive of Donald Trump. He's beaten the Democrat in that district. It was the same Democrat, Christy Smith, three times. He's up for re-election, of course. You've got uh, David Valadeo, another Republican who's, who a lot of people think is Latino because his name is Valadeo. It's, he's actually Portuguese. But he's running against Rudy Salas, who is Latino. How, how, do, how does all that get communicated and interpreted, do you think, by voters? Well, a name can be a good start. Uh, certainly, if a voter sees a name that looks familiar, they might feel a connection to it, and it might make them want to learn more about that candidate, or it might make them uh, begin to trust that candidate. But then the candidate still has to do the work to knock on the door and tell the voter what they stand for. Uh, I think in the case of someone like Rudy Salas, you have seen that. Um, he has been an extremely effective campaigner, uh, has done very well in winning Latino votes. Uh, I think in the case of Mike Garcia, if you compare him to other white Republicans, he probably is getting a little bit of a bump over what the standard Republican vote might be. There might be some what we call crossover vote of some people who may not see him as uh, alienating. But then it gets into how they campaign. And are they campaigning on those issues? And there have been plenty of Latino Republicans who have made that effort to be more moderate on immigration issues, talk about the importance of Spanish language, Latino culture, uh, and that helps them. On the other side, you have uh, Latino Republicans like Ted Cruz, who's run in Texas. He's never done that well. And in his race, his famous race in 2018 against Beto O'Rourke, Beto O'Rourke, a white candidate who had an adopted Spanish first name and spoke <laughs> Spanish, he did extremely well because he was out there campaigning in the community he was from El Paso. He knew the community. Uh, and so the name only gets you so far. And in, in the case of Ted Cruz, it didn't get him very far with the Latino electorate uh, in that campaign. But, you know, I, th I think we want to see what they do. We'll see what Mike Garcia does. How does he position himself? 
Uh, if he certainly positions himself as just a supporter of Donald Trump, I think that would hurt him. I think he would need to, to show himself as much more moderate uh, and open-minded. We have seen reports uh, and some focus group anecdotal information that uh, Latinos and black voters, for that matter, seem to be more open uh, to, say, Donald Trump even uh, and, and other Republicans, um, you know, in Imperial County down uh, to the east of San Diego. There was a big bump up in vote for Donald Trump from 20 uh, from 2016 to 2020. I'm wondering, like, to what extent are you hearing about that, seeing that, feeling that, that openness or even shift away from Democrats toward Republicans? We haven't really seen any partisan shift in party registration numbers or polling data. Um, That doesn't mean that uh, Democrats are winning 75% of the vote in horse race right now. They're not. But we haven't seen any partisan shift or realignment in the hard data. So if you look at the voter registration statistics for California, sort them by uh, surname or ethnicity, you don't see an increase. I think what happened was that 2016 represented a very low point Uh, for the Republican Party uh, coming off the heels of success of Obama as a very well-liked Democrat. And then Trump was not well-liked in 2016. And so there there were conservative Latinos who didn't support Trump back in 2016. So you saw a bit of an adjustment uh, or a correction, you might say, in 2020, where the Republican numbers were not necessarily good. Uh, Trump and other Republicans still did quite poorly in California with Latinos, but just not as poorly as they had done in, in 2012 or 2016. So it looked like some sort of increase. But keeping with historic numbers, it has always been here in California greater than a two to one margin uh, for Democrats over Republicans. And I think that's still where we are today. There hasn't appeared to be, again, in, in the hard data, any sort of significant realignment. But it is a message and a wake up call, I think, to both political parties to say, you need to do the work. You need to go out. You need to speak to Latinos. It's a new electorate. 20% are going to be first-time voters. They don't remember the 2012 Obama-Romney election. They weren't eligible. You need to re-explain where you stand on the issues, what your party stands for. Um, and that volatility is always going to be there in an electorate that is growing uh, so fast year after year. Matt, before I let you go, I have to ask you a question about an issue that is not simple, but immigration and border security. Uh, There is a lot of concern, certainly among Republicans. This has been a bread and butter issue for them, but also among some Democrats. And I'm wondering what you see, A, how Latino voters see that issue um, and, you know, how you see it playing out in the uh, 2024 election. I think that uh, politicians and the media have done a very bad job of understanding and unpacking border security vis-a-vis immigration reform. Border security and wanting to see a well-managed, orderly, humane, fair border uh, is something that every single American wants. Nobody wants to see the awful images that we saw during the Trump administration of people sleeping under underpasses, kids getting stolen away from their parents. Everybody wants an orderly, well-managed border. So we need to fund it. We need to have the proper number of agents and um, caseworkers. At the same time, the treatment of immigrants who are already here working, contributing, paying taxes is a separate issue. It is not a border security issue. And I think that's where Trump in particular gets it wrong when he conflates these, these issues. If he reverts back to his 2016 rhetoric, 
Remember, he didn't talk about immigration at all in 20. He just said, I'm going to reopen the economy because of COVID. If he reverts back to his 2016 rhetoric, where he's really demonizing immigrants and just an awful speech back in December in, in Iowa um, about immigrants uh, poisoning the blood of America, that is going to cost him because that is not a border security issue. Border security means let's make sure we have a well-managed and orderly border. Uh, and separately, we need to make sure that we are welcoming and incorporating the millions of immigrants, including undocumented immigrants who are here. So I think that's where the average Latino stands. It's not far away from where just the average American stands. America has always been very welcoming and open to immigrants, but at the same time wanting to have well-managed borders. All right. That is Matt Barreto. He founded and leads the Latino Policy and Politics Institute at UCLA. Matt, thank you so much. You got it, Scott. Take care. All right. That's a wrap for Tuesday, February 6th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm David Axelrod. CNN senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, and host of the Axe Files podcast. Join me each week as I interview key figures shaping our world from politics to the arts to sports and beyond. Listen on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play The Axe Files with David Axelrod.